Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 17th of March, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bring his Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. A chick. Uh, yes, uh, yes, a chick, a chick indeed. Uh, what are we? Are we sheep or are we chickens? We're going to be asking this question. Now, we've been dropping hints over the last number of weeks and months about what might be going on here. I'm going to put uh, a suggestion in front of everybody and uh, we, can, uh, we can discuss it and see what the truth might be. So I'm asking today, is COVID-19 Marek's disease for humans? Uh, I want to say thank you very much uh, to uh, our viewer who pushed uh, this through to us and, and uh, uh, just this final piece of the puzzle here. Um, but what is Marek's disease? Well, it's a highly contagious viral disease in chickens. It's been around since, well, for a, a quite a long time. It's named after uh, Josef uh, Marek, a Hungarian vet. Um, and uh, well, it, the chicks are vaccinated. They're vaccinated one day old. But here's the point. The vaccine that's used is what's described as a leaky vaccine. So what is a leaky vaccine? Um, it, uh, only the symptoms of the disease are prevented. Uh, infection of the host is not prevented. And transmission of the virus is not prevented by a leaky vaccine. Now, everybody should immediately recognize that all the COVID-19 vaccines are leaky. Now, why is this important? Um, well, let's have a look at what happened to the chicks with Marek's disease. The first vaccine was delivered in 1970. And then what happened was that uh, there was vaccine immunity escape of highly infectious strains. And uh, as the vaccine pro uh, program progressed, uh, the infectiousness of the strains of the virus became much more powerful, much stronger. Uh, in the end, infectiousness increased to the point that any unvaccinated chicken dies. Now, I want to remind everybody about Geert van den Bosch, uh, who we talked about on the program last week. Now, there's been quite a bit of criticism uh, of this man since he came out and, and made his uh, comments, his open letter and his uh, uh, video clip. Uh, and there's perhaps some justification to that criticism because he is uh, a vaccine man. He has worked with the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, uh, Foundation and so on. But the key thing here, I think, is we've got to listen to what he says and put it in the context of this. The key question is, he was asking, why does nobody seem to bother about viral immune escape? Now, this is an issue that has been discussed in the mainstream press. Even the BBC has discussed it. They have downplayed it, and they have basically dropped it from their narrative at this point in time. Uh, Van der Bosch went on to say, uh, from all of the above, it's becoming increasingly difficult to imagine how the consequences of the extensive and erroneous human intervention in this pandemic are not going to wipe out large parts of our human population. He said, one could only think of very few other strategies to achieve the same level of efficiency in turning a relatively harmless virus into a bioweapon of mass destruction. Now, are we seeing the same type of thing that happened uh, with Marek's disease in chickens and the vaccination program following that with COVID-19? Well, indeed we are, as we've been highlighting for a number of weeks. We've got more variants coming. Uh, we've got uh, variants of uh, concern as the trademark goes. And you've got to remember that lockdown will only be listed if the government's assessment of the risks is not fundamentally changed by a new variants of concern trademark, their capital V, their capital C. Um, so let's also remember that we now have 
eight variants on the watch list, four variants of concern and four variants under investigation. Are these new variants? Uh, Geert uh, van den Bos very much suggesting that these new variants are behaving differently to what's normal uh, and that uh, immune escape as a result of the vaccination program is the likely explanation for it. Um, but then we've got to remember, as we've made the point many times in this program over the last several months, the new variants of concern coming from the UK, coming from South Africa, coming from Brazil. And the fact is that the AstraZeneca vaccine was trialed in the UK, South Africa and Brazil. So are the new variants of concern uh, immune, uh, immune escape as a result of those trials? That's the question that has to be asked. And just by coincidence today, we've now got more suggestion that this is the direction of travel. Brazil vaccine resistant supervirus will develop alert as research finds terrifying truth, says the Express. Of course, the Express presenting this uh, with a fear-based uh, uh, headline. But nonetheless, this is what I think is going on uh, here. Um, this is the end game. COVID-19 vaccination program is designed to create asymptomatic spreaders who become factories of ever increasingly virulent strains with the aim of killing anyone who remains unvaccinated. Now we've got to consider the implications of this. Just think about it. If the only option for survival is a vaccine and the availability of the vaccine is controlled by corporates or governments, then we're literal slaves to the system. Uh, consider what happens when, if the vaccine available, availability, for example, is linked to social credit score, it becomes a situation of total control. So I'm gonna say that when Boris Johnson claims uh, that we are on a one-way road to freedom, actually, we have to take the 180 degree meaning to that because we can assume that Boris Johnson is lying we are on a one-way road to slavery if we accept the vaccines as they stand at the moment. These are, uh, these are leaky vaccines um, and uh, we are on a pretty serious uh, path. Alex, what are your thoughts on what we've just discussed? Terribly dark, Mike. I wonder whether we'll get a strike for your um, unusually frank assessment there, but it, we have to use the platform we have for our, uh, what our consciences and our analysis tells us uh, we are concluding is the case. Um, I have indirectly seen pharmaceuticals capturing government in the civil service, in the intelligence part of it, more directly in the decades since that time when I have been in the translation and interpreting profession where pharmaceuticals are notorious for treating everyone around them like slaves. Uh, I have to say that the uh, analysis and commentary offered by David Hawkins, uh, who was uh, in a long-term uh, commenting duo with Field McConnell and more latterly who appears on Jason Goodman's channel, is rather borne out by all you're saying because the central insight there is uh, a long-time deep-seated mafia hanging around the fringes of the crown in both Britain and North America, shaking people down. And this, is, this would be one of the ultimate shakedowns uh, of, of that model and the use of fear in that model. So it's, it's all borne out, really. Uh, we don't want to leave people totally despondent. It is St. Patrick's Day today, uh, a man who lived in perhaps the darkest time our islands have ever known, where uh, enslavement was nigh universal and even the power of Rome had waned and was no protection anymore. But individuals standing up in good conscience and with a love, even for those who've gone astray and who oppressed them, such as Patrick had, can change the fate not only of nations, but of whole continents. 
So uh, yeah. I would, in that spirit, I would say happy St. Patrick's Day. Yes, well, indeed. Uh, well, look, uh, first of all, Alex, apologies for having the wrong uh, lower third on there. But look, this isn't about uh, adding to people's fear. This is about understanding what are the potential implications of the direction of travel here. Now, I'm saying that this is malicious policy that is that is at work here. Many people will disagree with that position. Many people will say, well, it's the law of unintended consequences or it's incompetence. Either way, if the outcome is the equivalent of Marek's disease in humans. If the outcome is that destination, then we've got to understand it, we've got to consider it, we've got to face it, and we've got to challenge the people that are pushing uh, us in that direction at this point in time. Brian, this, this isn't about developing fear in people, this is about understanding the situation, facing it and dealing with it. And, and we're, we're also talking to adults, and I think this is an important thing to remind people as adults, we have to be able to cope with both life and death and what's actually happening around us. So I don't think we need to be squeamish about this at all. I just wanted to comment that over a great many years, we were warned about um, using too many antibiotics because what did this produce this produce resistance which could mean that uh, diseases which really were not that dangerous suddenly became very dangerous mm. so if we have a simple analogy we we know about the risks of antibiotics and we've trans we've um, translated this into the uh, virus arena and this man is giving us a very uh, a very major warning i'd just like to add that um it's so dangerous to brand people simply because of a label. It's much better to look at what people are doing and saying because we are very much encouraging people who are on the wrong side of the line to come forward and join the good people. So uh, people shouldn't automatically be branded because they are this and that and have been in the past. It's what they're doing now that, that uh, counts. Mm. So let's have a look at... Um, let's have a look at what the BBC is saying to people in what I can only describe as an utterly disgraceful clip. Your friends, family, colleagues, classmates and anyone else you come into contact with, even strangers, could be put in danger if you turn down the vaccine. It's not just a decision that affects you. It's OK to have questions about the Covid vaccine. That's normal. It's good to talk about them, though, with your doctor or community leaders or even friends and family you trust who have received the vaccine already. Vaccines have been tested rigorously and they've been found to be safe and to prevent people from developing symptoms and getting seriously ill with COVID-19. But now we're starting to see research which suggests that a vaccine can prevent people from spreading the virus too. You're vaccinated and your friends and colleagues are vaccinated. That will substantially reduce the risk for everybody. That makes sense. If you're not coughing or sneezing, then it's harder to pass the virus on. If we spread less COVID-19, fewer people get sick and the pandemic will be over sooner. So the current thinking is, if you choose to get the vaccine, you're choosing to look after yourself and everyone you come into contact with. If you don't, then you and those people won't have that protection. But scientists say they need to gather more data on this issue before we can be certain that vaccines reduce transmission. But even if it turns out to be true, if too many people don't get their shot, then that makes it easier for the virus to find a way to spread, meaning more people will get ill and die. And if it turns out the vaccine doesn't stop you from spreading the virus, 
then it's even more important that everyone gets their shots. There is only one victor in a world where a vaccine haves and vaccine have not, the virus itself. Well, before that um, video started, I stressed the importance of being an adult. And the first thing I'd point out is the BBC's produced this video. Was this video for adults or children? Um, I think actually it was for adults, but you're addressing adults as children. It talked about your sort of uh, school colleagues or your school chums at one point. So the whole style of this is talking to the adult population in UK as if they're children, but psychologically enormous pressure on children uh, because they are saying in in a childish cartoon way, if you don't get a vaccine, you will be responsible for the death of other people. So that is a very dangerous, in my opinion, and I'm yes, I'm using that word, um, action by the BBC to target children's minds with that type of accusation. And uh, what are they also saying? Well, they're also saying that it's good to talk to people. Well, that sounds as if they're moving in line with the NHS informed decision type policy. But no, the BBC says the only people you must speak to are people who've been vaccinated. So appalling piece of, uh, of work. Alex, just very quickly, because I can see you frowning on screen. Uh, the BBC is really uh, beyond the pale these days. How do we describe this propaganda machine? Alinskyite. The reason I choose that word, Brian, is because one of the sequences in that cartoon was the sentence, and you have to listen to the whole sentence. It's a long one. You could easily have missed it. It's good to talk to community leaders. That was one of the clauses, if you isolate that bit of the sentence. And what's the image accompanying that? Uh, a worked up young woman with a pigtail with a loud hailer in her left hand, a bullhorn, as the Americans would call it, and a pointy Marxist arm in the other. March this way. Don't think. Go. Uh, community leader is, of course, a term we started to see on the screens of that very BBC in the 1990s as the Northern Ireland troubles exited one phase and as the, the Muslim white uh, tensions in many English cities started to rise. Many questions to be asked about how but these, uh, these, these uh, trends happened in the 90s. And at that time, suddenly the BBC told us that there were such people in the world as community leaders. And these are the people who give us our orders now. Uh, for the backstory, look at Saul Alinsky in the early 1970s. Yeah, thank, thank you, Alex. Well, let's just highlight that, of course, what the BBC was desperate not to talk to the public about was this. Uh, this is the yellow card adverse reactions for vaccines. Uh, you need to go on the gov.uk website uh, to find it. You're looking for coronavirus COVID-19 vaccine adverse reactions. That'll take you into another section. And at the end of that section, you can finally get into the spreadsheets, which list um, adverse reaction after adverse reaction covering almost every part of the body. Uh, the BBC does not want to tell people that in order to make an informed choice about vaccines, you need to know what the supposed advantages are and what these disadvantages are. So this is deliberately misleading the public by the BBC about vaccines. But let's come on to your point, Mike, about uh, can we trust the government with regard to COVID? Uh, well, if we just come back to February, this is the 22nd of February, the government put up its uh, response to COVID. Here was the executive summary. 
and it said the government's overriding goal is to protect the lives and livelihoods of citizens across Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. Well, I'm going to say that was a lie. I think we can prove this quite easily. Uh, this was uh, two key parts of the document that caught my eye. This COVID-19 response sets out how the government will continue to protect and support citizens across the UK. Well, that's not what they're doing at all, as we shall see. And of course, he did say that vaccines are at the heart of the UK government strategy. But of course, it's vaccines plus lockdown. Well, what are we interested in? We're interested in this. Uh, this is part of the document, the socio-economic analysis of step one. And it says here very uh, clearly restricting face-to-face -face education has had significant adverse effects on children's learning, development and, quote, mental health, unquote. So we can see here that the government knew full well that by implementing um, lockdown, by restricting education, it had, quote, adverse impacts on children's learning development and mental health. Uh, goes on here, restrictions on socialising have had an adverse impact on people's well-being and mental health, with nearly half of adults reporting boredom, loneliness, anxiety or stress. Uh, arising due to the pandemic. Now there's spin in that sentence because of course what they're talking about is restrictions on socialising uh, that has been implemented by the government, uh, but the end of the sentence tries to make it appear that that's the result of the virus mm. by saying it's due to the pandemic. So this is skewed language in order to interfere with people's cognitive processes and ultimately this will make them feel even worse. Uh, why are we highlighting this? Well, several people said to me, was I aware of this story? And of course, this is one of many where a, a lady has committed suicide because she was, quote, terrified of infecting her family with COVID. Uh, her husband said this, um, that uh, he could offer no clues as to why this incident had occurred. He described his wife as a warrior who was particularly concerned about contracting coronavirus and passing it on to her family. So this lady, like many, many other people in the country, um, was a warrior, um, but now she's got the whole strain of coronavirus and how dangerous it is and that she could be responsible for killing her family. Uh, what has the result been? So. Mr. Weaver said the family are at a complete loss as to why this has happened as she displayed no warning signs prior to death. Now, unfortunately, that can often be the case when somebody commits suicide. But of course, the truth was known because the GP in this article, or the GP surgery at least, uh, said that in 2007, she visited with issues relating to her mental health and a long-standing problem with anxiety. So this, in fact, was a very vulnerable individual. Uh, 2013, she told her GP she had intense anxiety and sometimes experienced suicidal thoughts. And yet this type of vulnerable person has been targeted by the British government and the SAGE team, the Spy B team, in order to ramp up stress and anxiety, in order to get the government's lockdown 
uh, procedures in place. Now I had a look at the surgery website just to see what a person who was in a bad mental place would face if they tried to get help and it's very complicated. Let's take you through it very quickly. So I picked out COVID-19 support room which was here. Uh, this took me through to another page where I've got all sorts of things thrown at me. Well, well-being while staying at home, advice for patients with pre-existing conditions. Most of this, I would suggest if you read it, if you were in a bad mental place, would quickly be drawing you into another dark place and it would be confusing you. But I did see this, visit NHS Every Mind Matters for advice, practice advice and support groups. And if you go to that, you end up with another page and a lot more other menus. I saw these two, worried about your symptoms and urgent support. So if we take the one on the left, the NHS worried about your symptoms, where did that take us to? Well, it took us here, self-isolating and treating coronavirus symptoms. So this wasn't gonna help you anyway. Um, but this I thought was just incredible because the next thing you're faced with at the bottom, help with re research into treatments, take part in coronavirus research. So you're already scared out of your mind about coronavirus. You go seeking help and they're trying to draw you into actually testing the program itself. If you go in the other direction, let's have a look at that one, the urgent support. Uh, it says, if you cannot wait to see a doctor and feel unable to cope or keep yourself safe, it's important to get support. Services are still open during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, what are you going to be directed to? You're going to be given all of these charities and other organisations saying they are there to help. I tried to speak to the, the press team at the Samaritans to ask what the load is from people suffering mental health problems in lockdown. I got a recorded message to say that they were so busy, uh, there was nobody there to speak to me. So I think they gave that answer pretty quickly. And ironically, when you go through this particular menu, um, it talks about mental health problems and effectively leads you back to contacting your GP in the first place. So this is all immensely difficult for somebody to go through. And let's look at that in context to what the uh, UK column was warning people about back in May 2020. Um, Boris Johnson was talking about greater social contact. Uh, lockdown restrictions were being eased, apparently. Um, but amongst that, it said this, the government's roadmap for lifting the lockdown raises the possibility of bubbles. And it was just the UK column that warned people about uh, Per Block, this gentleman who was Mr Bubbles from the Department of Sociology at Oxford. Uh, he was talking about a common sense approach to lockdown and bubbles and how good they were. But of course, there was nothing in his work that we saw that was about the risk to mental health. And yet his colleagues, such as this lady, Marion Hoffman, was tweeting reports where another colleague, uh, Timothy Elmer, said we did a study on the effects of COVID-19 lockdown on mental health and social integration of students. Most students reported worse 
mental health than before the crisis. So the government absolutely knows the danger of their lockdown policies on mental health of students. We warned about the impact on children, but on it went because she'd also tweeted out this um, diagram. And if we go top right, more warnings about the effect on children's mental health. And at the very bottom of this analysis, it's actually saying, well, some of these uh, effects are indirectly linked to morbidities. So the government is aware that its policies are having a huge adverse effect as some people are taking their lives. Uh, this was uh, your report from the 1st of June. Uh, 2020, Mike, the conclusion is that the introduction of bubbles is not straightforward and carries potential unforeseen risks. SAGE can undertake more work on this and would advise understanding this more to inform any decision. Uh, but of course, they did no such thing. No risk assessment has been carried out. And if we come back to those appalling minutes from the SAGE team, from their meeting on the 22nd of March 2020. If people have not been aware of this, this was the key thing. The SAGE team said that the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased amongst those who are complacent using, quote, hard-hitting emotional messaging. This was to ramp up fear in order to get people to adhere to the government policies. And the second one that we highlighted at the time uh, was in this section where it said that basically social uh, disapproval was to be used to get people to follow the line. So communities were to be turned on each other, causing effectively that would cause stress, anxiety, fear and depression with the risk of violence. So here we are uh, today. We've got this headline from The Telegraph, the role of SAGE to be reviewed over fears that scientists hold too much power. And the subheadline there says that apparently their policies hold too much sway over ministers. Uh, just before I put the red label on this, Alex, um, are we really to believe that our government ministers are so stupid and weak they are swayed by the malicious policies from the SAGE team? Yes, um, I went to rugby in Cambridge with the material that became ministers and others like James Dellingpole will say the same. They really are that thick and that full of bluster and bravado. Uh, they, they, they pride themselves, the traditional class from which our ministers are drawn, on not being details men. And with the expansion to include women and ethnic minorities who've enjoyed the same privileged education, uh, the chinless wonderism hasn't gone away. It's still all bluster. And it's not just Britain, you know, any uh, country in the Western world now that's on a similar kind of lockdown, uh, you will see that the ministers uh, in the name of the people or the crown or whatever the country involved says, uh, defer and delegate all such decision making to scientific advisory bodies. It's constitutionally questionable uh, in any jurisdiction that it's played, but particularly in Britain because we have a coronation oath. The Queen is supposed to be governing us according to our laws and customs. Ministerial advice must come a distant second and can't be binding. And advice to ministers doesn't even come into the equation historically. Well, we're going to, thank you, Alex. We'll just put our label up on that uh, slide because I think we need to do it. Uh, because these people are essentially unaccountable. They're out of control. They appear to be deranged. And we're going to say they need to be stopped. The only people to stop this happening are the wider public of UK that have got to stand up and uh, speak out about it.
Uh, now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we uh, highlighted that uh, the COVID-19 vaccine passport uh, petition had received 261 plus signatures, plus thousand signatures, that is. Uh, so that was uh, doing very well. Uh, Parliament decided that they were going to debate this, the petition and that was going to take place on the 15th of March, which of course was uh, Monday. Uh, well, that debate did happen, but before we get to that, the government responded by saying the government is reviewing whether COVID status certificates uh, could play a role in reopening parts of our economy, reducing restrictions on social contact and improving safety. Um, so they did, in fact, uh, have their debate uh, on Monday uh, and it was led or chaired by uh, Mike Hill, uh, who is no longer MP for Hartlepool because he... Uh, uh, chaired this debate on Monday and then resigned on Tuesday. So uh, he was saying the petition is not difficult to understand and stems from genuine concerns among many of the petitioners. Uh, and But he did uh, go on to say that I must also stress at this point that although I encourage everyone to get their vaccination uh, when they're offered it, people do have the right to choose not to be vaccinated vaccinated if they so wish. So anyway, that was in his opening remarks. I'm not going to bore anybody with whatever else was uh, was spoken about in the debate. Uh, but uh, the government did at the end of the day announce this. Uh, and that is that uh, COVID status certification review is taking place. They're asking for evidence. So it's a call for evidence to inform the review into COVID status certification. But it doesn't last for the traditional 90 days. No, uh, this ends at 11.45 p.m. on the 29th of March, 2021. This is an open call for evidence. So everybody, I would suggest, needs to be uh, getting involved with this. Um, so uh, this falls pretty short of the requirement for time. But uh, let's just remind ourselves, 261,288 signatures in that. If 261,288 people responded to that call for evidence, uh, then uh, perhaps there would be some progress made there, Brian. But the other consultation, i just remind you, because it is linked, uh, which ended on the 11th of March. Uh, I hope everybody uh, did uh, take part in this was about digital identity, because of course this is linked to COVID passports. If they don't have a basis for digital identity, then COVID passports aren't gonna work. Don't We don't have to worry about this new digital identity regime that's being uh, uh, created, if you remember, because there's gonna be a data management policy, which is gonna protect uh, us, all our data. Uh, it's gonna follow industry standards and best practice for information security and encryption. And we're gonna be told if any changes have been made uh, to digital identity, for example, an update to an address. Yes, but just remember uh, that this is all about uh, attributes, uh, pieces of personal information held in a wallet securely on your device. It might be whether you're over 21, it might be whether you're licensed to drive, it might be whether you're a pensioner uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, so that is really what they are talking about uh, producing and it could include disclosing details from the government, such as your name, your legal name, I should say, your legal name, your date of birth, your right to reside, to work or to study, as well as details from other organizations, such as professional qualifications and employment history. This is, Alex, all being tied together. Uh, digital identity, some kind of basis for that, with uh, a vaccination uh, passport of some kind, whether they want to call it a certificate or not, linked to some kind of device, uh, at, in the meantime, a phone. Um, this is a direction to travel again. It's not a great one. 
Yes, uh, look at Scandinavia, the Baltics and the Netherlands for a lead here because they are the kind of jurisdictions where this gets pushed through with much less coordinated opposition. Uh, but it is the way it's going. And I know our viewers will take a range of views on the idea of a legal name fraud, and I'm not taking one or other position on that. But I would say that uh, in the common law countries, historically, there has not been any such thing as a legal name. The common law states of the world do not ar arrogate to themselves the power to name you or to stop your parents giving you any name that they wish. Uh, at the very most, there is a, a statutory uh, provision for punishing uh, fraud where people have claimed that doctor, for example, is part of their name or president when it is not. But we don't even need deed polls in the common law countries uh, to change our names. We simply start using the new ones. That is the historical and still, I believe, current common law position. Yes. Where does that take us? Takes us to Spain, Alex. Yeah. And uh, well, you're going to have to tell us what this is saying. The Spanish government's uh, official bulletin, state bulletin, is talking here, and thanks to the viewers in Spain and Portugal who drew these pieces to our attention, about uh, the use of a royal decree to uh, institute nine COVID-19 courts. Nueve juzgados COVID-19. And uh, the, the, there is not much detail in the uh, royal decree, but we do see that the ministry, using the, the crown as its uh, glove puppet, as they usually do these days in most countries, is saying we have decided that there are nine new judicial centres or, or, or forums needed in outlying parts of northern and western Spain and the islands. Uh, and they, are, uh, they do have the, uh, the frankness to say that these are COVID-19 courts. The viewer who sent it said that uh, with that in the title, or at least in the description above the Royal Decree text, it looks rather like they're going to be used for extra uh, or non-traditional means of finding and imprisoning people for non-compliance in the context of COVID-19. Over the border in Portugal, another British expatriate has sent us this. The Algarve, um, uh, basically the Algarve Expatriates Association, ASMAR, with a double A at the end, has the headline alert, is your property at risk of expropriation? Now again, Portugal is a republic rather than a crown, but it doesn't make much difference these days. In this case, it's the Council of Ministers, uh, basically the cabinet, who have decided to decree, again, without going through parliament, uh, that uh, in the context of COVID-19, the state has a pressing need to expropriate properties for a range of reasons, some of which ASMA lists on the following slide. Uh, and these would be the likes of, uh, well, this is obviously not in the text of the decree, but this is, this is filling in uh, an, um, uh, an assumption by ASMA, I think reasonably, m uh, mineral mining such as lithium, uh, infrastructure for new communications technologies, uh, fracking, mass agricultural products, uh, projects rather, mega solar parks, airports and other such infrastructure. Uh, but if we go on we see that there is an express link in the text. Here we are, 23rd of February 2021, the Presidencia do Conselho do Ministros, the Presidency of the Council of Ministers, so the, uh, the, the Portuguese government acting uh, outside Parliament, has put together this decreto lei, this, uh, this de law by decree, uh, on that date, and if we look inside the uh, summary of it by the Portuguese Ordem dos Avocados, the uh, Order of uh, Advocates or, or Lawyers, we see that it is in fact called a Code of Expropriations, Código das Expropriações, and uh, there is an auto-translate on the next slide of how that would work. And uh, it's a fairly good auto-translate just of the title, the summary. You always look at when you look at laws to see what's going on. The summary of this, as auto-translated, is that this decree creates a special regime of expropriation 
and a constitution of administrative easements, that is uh, compensation for losing your property, for the execution of project, projects integrated in the economic and social stabilisation programme. It's remarkable what COVID-19 can uh, let governments get away with, isn't it, gentlemen? Uh, yes, and without challenge, without any de democratic challenge. Alex, that's the key point. Uh, in every so-called democracy, uh, there are decrees and, and various uh, statutory instruments and other uh, mechanisms being used to avoid the democratic process. Yes, I mean, you can hold your member of parliament to account, although in countries with proportional representation, there isn't such really a direct uh, link between the, the voter and the, the MP as there is in Britain. Uh, but ultimately, it's your president or your crown that has broken their oath by allowing this kind of detail of legislation to be legislated, whether it's in your um, local regional uh, council, whether it's in your national parliament, whether it's in Brussels. Uh, this level of detail not going through your parliament uh, is really an abrogation of duty. Well, we can rely on the police uh, in uh, this country, of course, to protect us, or can we? I'm going to say thank you very much to the viewer that uh, pushed this document in our direction. Now, this is from 2018. It's not a very long document, but it's very interesting from the Police Federation, the Office of Constable, the bedrock of modern-day British policing. And we can see on the back of the uh, constable's jacket there, every constable is an independent legal entity the public's guarantee of impartiality. Officers of the Crown operate independent of undue influence, interference, and with a personal responsibility which requires a unique type of person and commitment. That's a pretty uh, forthright statement. So like. which is he, a constable or an officer of the Crown? It seems a bit ambiguous or, or at least an oxymoron going on there sometimes. That's, that's true. There are a few little things in this uh, document, but I'm going to say it's interesting that back in 2018, there's an undertone, I would say, that the Police Federation is a little bit concerned with what they see as a creeping control of the police. And they're actually highlighting that uh, we should be wary of this. Just show one other page here. Uh, what is the office of constable? Every sworn police officer in England and Wales is a constable, irrespective of rank. It's from the office of constable that each officer derives their powers. On appointment, each police officer makes a declaration to faithfully discharge the duties of the office of constable. In England and Wales, police officers swear... Uh, uh, Sorry, swear an allegiance yes, to the monarch. Yes, yeah, sorry, swear an allegiance to the monarch. This is to ensure the separation of power and political independence of the office of constable. The office of constable means that a police officer has the additional legal powers of arrest and control of the public given to him or her directly by a sworn oath and warrant. These are not delegated powers simply because they've been employed as an officer and officers are not employees. They are not agents of the police force, police authority or government. Those who hold the office of constable are servants of the crown. Uh, very quickly, Alex, because I think you might want to say something on this. Um, this is quite an interesting document because it is pushing the right things about how we're police. We're police by consent. Police constables should be independent and they work as their own personal unit to make decisions on, to, on how they're going to enforce the law uh, within the wider guidelines. Um, what's your response just on this bit? Because we've got a little film coming up. 
This is a unique heritage in the common law countries to be cherished. They really are individual constables. The flip side is that if they break the law uh, knowingly and culpably, they can be sued as individual men and women, which isn't something that the Home Office or your local chief constable wants getting out. Uh, they may be given taxpayer uh, funds to, to uh, fight that if you give them a civil lawsuit, but unlike on the continent, you can go after the individual policeman in prosecution or to recover damages. It's absolutely right, but this is only the latest of, I think, a growing tempo of police federations uh, for the Metropolitan Police in London, uh, regularly now in Scotland and across the English-speaking world, the police federations, the civil or the the, um, the trade unions for police are saying uh, we cannot be pushed past a certain point in policing by consent. Uh, we don't want to be, or we cannot be, uh, policing regulations, for example, or where there is no popular will or agreement that certain measures such as breaking up assemblies are necessary. Uh, so it is a good sign and by all means support and encourage vocally the police federations that say these things. They are now speaking to, for example, the Daily Telegraph with regard to this. Okay, thank you for that. Well, I'll just add to that. Well, we hope that the Police Federation and the National Police Chiefs Council will be strong, of course, to police their own police constables when those police constables seem to act outside the law. Let's have a look at this little video clip. Now, a few people in the chat box 
correctly picked up that this uh, occurred a little while ago. Uh, I should have said that before the video started, but nevertheless, it was such a uh, tremendous example of the police simply acting way outside their powers mm. and in such a very aggressive and unpleasant manner. Um, so I'm just going to say, Alex, um, police constables, if they're acting in the role of police constables, need to start realising what their job is and they need to be treating the public with the respect the, the uh, public deserves. Uh, clearly, this officer was just not aware of his job in any respect. When he was asked there, and it was a month ago in the West Midlands this happened, when he was asked, so you think that as a police officer you have the right to stop anyone and demand their identity, he did say, yeah, aggressively. Now, that is specifically what has been found against in 1966 in the seminal case of Rice versus Connolly, which we keep mentioning and people are picking up in the chat box before us now, well done viewers, but it's, been, it's recently been uh, reconfirmed through the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984, uh, through a case against Thames Valley Police uh, in more recent years in the Blair era, and latterly of all in South Wales, the same jurisdiction as England, um, Neal, N-E-A-L-E, versus the Director of Public Prosecutions, Neil versus DPP. Look for the write-up on bindmans.com, which is the legal firm that represented Mr. Neil, and there are handy links there to all of those in a good write-up of that case and its ramifications, which specifically says, regardless of anything that might allegedly have changed in the era of COVID, there is no uh, entitlement to a police uh, officer to uh, come and demand your identity or to, to include from your non-cooperation with them that you are a suspect so that policeman knew jolly well that he was lying when he said i've got a reasonable suspicion that you are lying to me he was using the right phrase with uh, with a tone of voice that indicated i know what uh, what what words to, to bandy about here yeah okay well we're going to say for viewers and listeners please do your research on that one and have a look at that documentation that alex has mentioned um, but it's up to us the public to pick up police constables when they're not doing their job this is the way that uh, of course the full circle is turned when the public is policing those who should be policing them Sorry. Okay, yeah, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, you would be welcome if you were to join us. That would be fantastic. Uh, also, please do share our material on whatever platform uh, it is available. Uh, we are on Odyssey as well as the others. Uh, so if you want to share that stuff, that would be fantastic. Yeah, and we also uh, just put up Lynn Thayer's funding appeal again. This is link the link through to the Livingston's Dot blog uh, link which will take you to the appeal page and as we showed on Monday the appeal is now being handled by a very kind individual that's made a bank account available and we know that uh, many people have transferred their original donations via the crowdfunder through into this um, new account procedure please remember as instructed on the site to give email um, details and your name so that there is a full record of where these donations are coming from that's very important now big thank you to people who've been e emailing into the uk column uh, this one caught my eye hello i'm not sure if you're aware of what's happening to staff within the nhs my relation works within the a e department she has had the first dose of vaccine a few weeks ago i've persuaded her not to have the second dose 
that she was due to have it today. She said if they don't have it, they're being fined £160 and they would need to have a chat with their manager. Um, I've not heard about this before and find it concerning. She called them and made an excuse, but I'm very worried for her and all NHS staff that work so hard to look after us. So we were interested in this because, no, we haven't heard of the threat of fines within the NHS. That, of course, will come with threats. So if there's anybody else who can tell us more about this, we'd like to know. But we do know that the number of NHS uh, personnel who are rejecting the vaccine is growing and growing as more evidence of the dangers comes to the fore. Uh, this is another one that came in. Hi, Brian. Thank you for all you uh, for all you do. My daughter is seven months pregnant and with her first child yesterday while at work, she became unable to breathe and felt dizzy. She called 111 who told her to go to the hospital, Swindon Great Western. She arrived at A&E around one. She does not wear a mask or believe the hype. So when she arrived, they told her she would not be allowed in the hospital without a mask. So you've got trouble breathing, uh, Mike, and what, does the, uh, what do A&E tell you? You need to put a mask on. So this lady says quite rightly, are they for real? As seven months pregnant, struggling to breathe and feel, feeling dizzy, now wearing a mask. She was panicking because she was scared about the baby and adhered to their utterly dangerous and potentially life-threatening demands, having to sit in A&E until 7 p.m. So six hours with a mask on. How is this madness allowed to happen? Uh, I'd like you, if possible, to call this hospital out as I find it totally unacceptable that the staff there and the staff there should be ashamed of their actions restricting an already struggling to breathe pregnant young lady and causing more stress on her and the baby. Unfortunately, I do not live local to her, so I was unable to go to her rescue. Believe me, they would have been educated in not only their professional, but also moral stance. So one hospital mentioned there, and of course we've got the conundrum. We know that there are many really good professional NH staff attempting to do their best, but they're working within this increasingly draconian threatening management style of the NHS, which says you must follow the policy. You must get patients to follow the policy, even if it's causing them further stress and possible medical harm. Quite amazing. Yes, now let's move on to uh, defence. And of course, yesterday, Boris Johnson uh, released the uh, integrated, def integrated review. Um, but prior to that, uh, the Commander of Strategic Command, General Sir Patrick Sanders, uh, he was introducing this a little bit. He said, uh, and this was really one of the focus points, Russia has a combined military and non-military means to alter the map, attempting to change the balance of powers, power and undermining the cohesion of our societies through disinformation. Um, so this was very much a focus of everything. Uh, the government's integrated review will set out a competitive strategy for regaining the initiative to deal with those nasty Russians. And the announcement of a £24.1 billion uplift in spending is an, emphat an emphatic statement of intent. Well, is it? Uh, because in fact, in fact, the Ministry of Defence has a massive deficit, a massive black hole, and that £24.1 billion isn't really going to do much 
well, it may just about fill it. Uh, so it isn't really an uplift in spending. It's really uh, in order to fill a hole that's already there. Uh, alongside investments in modernization of our conventional fighting force, and he's talking about ships, aircraft, and tanks, and so on, uh, we'll be guided by a laser-like focus on tackling the emerging threats of the future. So he's talking about uh, AI uh, and cyber uh, and space. Uh, we will sharpen our competitive edge, especially in space and cyber and fields like artificial intelligence. Um, so this is the uh, integrated review, the future of defense. Uh, they produced a nice little video clip to go along with it. Uh, and uh, so uh, the other sort of major announcement in this, aside from the fact that uh, Russia is very bad and China is very bad, uh, is that uh, we are increasing our nuclear deterrent from 180 warheads to, what was it, 260, I think. Um, and uh, uh, this is the foundation of our foreign policy. It's who we are as a country, our values, our strengths, and more importantly, our people, said Boris. And so I'm determined to ensure we have a foreign policy that delivers for those people. Uh, our international ambitions must start at home. And through the integrated review, we will drive investment back into our communities, ensuring the UK is on the cutting edge of innovation and creating an entire country that is match fit for more competitive world. So assuming, Alex, you haven't uh, uh, vomited over that uh, rhetoric from Boris, um, uh, what I did notice, aside from the anti-Russian and anti-Chinese rhetoric, is very much the same old hidden meanings, you know, European security this, supporting the stability and security of Europe that. Uh, and and uh, so clearly we, you know, despite uh, claims that the integrated review represents our future post-Brexit, uh, really in mind, they have nothing of the sort. Mike, we're a hundred years or more past our world domination of yore, and even in those centuries, the two or three centuries when we had that status of hegemon, uh, we didn't attempt to be Europe's uh, guarantor of peace. Uh, at the very most, we would ally with the underdog in a superpower struggle on the European continent to make sure that there was no domination of Europe by any force. So it's a complete flip of our roles. And it's not just anti-Russia and anti-China, what you've gone through there, it's anti-us. Because of course, as we've been going through in our psychological attack on the UK series, uh, Brian and myself, um, the originator of the doctrine of disinformation, the Soviets and the Romanian Securitate, had a defector, the head of the Securitate actually, under President Carter, uh, he defected to the US, uh, Lieutenant General Mihai, Jon Mihai Pacepa, who wrote the book, literally wrote the book on disinformation and said that disinformation was the Soviets, Russians these days, using people in Western countries to propagandize on behalf of Russia while claiming to be a person in Britain or America or Canada giving their own opinion. So if the general is accurate in his understanding of disinformation and isn't just talking out of the wrong part of his anatomy, then he is accusing anyone off message in Britain, America and the Commonwealth of being acting for the Russians. That's the accusation there. Well, it is indeed. And of course, that's a long-standing accusation uh, for many years now. But uh, Alex, the one, I'll just get you to briefly comment on this. The one other thing that stood out for me on the, in the integrated review document uh, was, first of all, the cartoons. Uh, which you know we talk about uh, the way that information is presented this yeah. day being these days being cartoon like it was very cartoon like, but they specified they were very keen to specify that Britain is currently the thirdest third largest soft power uh, in the world, uh, and they focused on two main institutions that represent UK soft power. One was the BBC, uh, and one was the British Council, and I just thought that was uh, quite a, a statement in that document.
Yes, because soft power implies that you win hearts and minds, but both of those organizations have faced repeated accusations in inevitably Russia and China, but in many other countries in wider Eurasia and now Africa as well, of being uh, nests of spies, to be frank. In many cases that one can name, usually they get suppressed, of course, in Western press, but there are repeated credible accusations to that end. So what does the soft power in, in question actually amount to? Uh, something a bit a bit harder than soft, shall we say. And I remember just a couple of years ago, Britain touting one survey that it was soft power number one in the world, outranking Germany and America. So something's obviously happened there. Uh, well, indeed. Um, now, uh, in, by coincidence, yesterday NATO also released their annual report. Uh, but uh, we've got a slightly different focus on NATO here, Alex, starting off with uh, going back to June 2020. Jens Stoltenberg, the Norwegian who is the Secretary General of NATO, launched a NATO 2030 document uh, in the middle of last year. Uh, and uh, his pitch was that it was making our strong alliance even stronger, according to the NATO press release at the time. Now, this has been chewed over by, for nine months by a very senior group of retired French generals uh, who have come out in Capital.fr this month, uh, or rather Capital has covered their letter um, with uh, a piece that has the headline, uh, we have to stop this mad train before it's too late. Uh, you can read the French original there or auto-translate it if you look for the headline that is on screen at the moment. Now, the spokesman and signatory for this group of retired um, staff officers and, and, and uh, senior defence civil servants um, is, is a man who will bring on screen at the moment. But first, to uh, tell our audience what the group that wrote this letter, which they've chewed over for quite a while, uh, is, uh, you might like to read the description on Capital here. Uh, of what the CRI, Circle de Réflexion Interarmée, is. This is their own description of themselves. Sorry, I, I don't, I'll read that again, Alex, because I think we were uh, we had a technical problem there. Uh, so CRI is an independent tri-service forum of retired French senior officers of all three armed services uh, and some civilians. It aims to reach public opinion and political decision makers better, thereby restoring the armed services to the heart of the nation from which they are drawn. Now, as you read that, it strikes me that this is the real uh, McCoy of what the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, claims to be the think tank at the heart of Whitehall, which increasingly is, is selling us global government and uh, interdependence in defence and security and whatnot. Um, this CRI in, um, in France is a real version of that. It's a concerned club of retired senior officers and strategic defence thinkers who wish in the neutral sense to bend the ears of policymakers and the public. So the uh, spokesman and signatory for the response uh, by this group to uh, the NATO 30, 2030 document is retired General Grégoire Diamantidis, a Frenchman of Greek extraction, who was from the uh, Brigade Aérienne, the French Air Force or the French Air, uh, Aerial Brigade. And there's quite a lot that he said here. Uh, so I'll let uh, you perhaps, Mike, read that slide by slide and I'll intersperse some comments at a, occasionally. Okay, so he says NATO 2030 sets out NATO's missions for the next 10 years. From the outset, it is evident that NATO is fully gearing itself towards a two-threat paradigm, uh, a Russian menace, which is presented uh, as already present, and a Chinese menace presented as potential and yet to come. 
So uh, that's his uh, starting gambit, yeah. Yes, and he goes on to say two key vectors leap out from this NATO 2030 study. Uh, first, the marshalling of Europeans against Chinese designs on planetary domination, the quid pro quo for which is US protection of Europe against the Russian threat. Uh, second, the removal in several ways of the rule of consensus in decision making. Above all, uh, delegation uh, to SACUR uh, for efficiency and speed. SACUR is the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, a US uh, usually a four-star general, isn't it, who commands yes. uh, NATO on the ground in Europe. And here he's saying, look, we not just are we recalcitrant French, but all the continental Europeans and indeed the British acted on the very firm understanding uh, that NATO was not a go-and-do-this organisation. It was a round table acting by consensus. And until very recently, NATO itself uh, banged its drum about this. We're a consensus organisation. Yes, okay. And so he goes on to say, uh, in reading through NATO 2030, what clearly emer emerges is a monument of quiet bad faith, surreptitious disinformation and exploiting the Russian threat, uh, a threat blatantly created and subsequently maintained to make European allies toe the US line in preparation for the looming struggle with China for global hegemony. Uh, and uh, it was quite interesting because they were quite detailed in this. They were making the point, Alex, that, that uh, you know, NATO had pushed its way up onto the borders of Russia. Russia had subsequently uh, left the NATO-Russia uh, uh, forum. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, NATO then felt justified in saying that Russia was becoming aggressive again. Uh, because they'd because they'd walked out from the the NATO Russia uh, uh, partnership, um, but they they caused that to happen in the first place. Yes, the bit of the letter that we're skipping over at this point, and you're correctly noting, gives a potted history of the time since really the end of the Yeltsin era, and particularly since the beginning of the Putin era, um, where first the Clinton White House and then the uh, uh, Bush 43 White House and then the Clinton White House did a number of things which uh, I think French generals like no other have brought out. I've previously publicised the book by Jacques Augard uh, about the, uh, the, the nearly Third World War that we had in um, Kosovo. Uh, his book is entitled L'Europe est morte à Pristina, and his point was uh, Europe had to cave in to German and particularly American bullying of Russia uh, at that time. And at this point in the document, the retired generals um, writing the letter do go on through this and give de a chapter and verse on what was going on uh, through the 2000s and the early 2010s with regard to repeated poking of Russia using its, uh, its satellite countries, which had become NATO and US. Um, allies and EU allies. And it's not just NATO that lost its Russia forum in those years. Um, I remember vividly when there was a, a, a breach in the previously regular MI5, MI6 Russian intelligence consultations that happened until just, just around the time of the Moscow Rocks affair in around 2006. Uh, again, it was actually Britain that broke that off, not Russia. Okay, and uh, he went on to say, actually, Mr. Secretary General, history does not begin in 2014. Uh, not only do you plan to transform defensive NATO into an offensive alliance against an enemy that is not Europe's enemy, uh, though we're not fooled about China's ambitions. Uh, he says this report goes further, squarely heading for an organization with a world political ambition holding sway over all other international organizations. 
Uh, and he says, uh, not content with uh, having wrecked Europe's chance of a real lasting peace desired by all, NATO, motivated only by self-preservation and overreach, has triggered massive rearmament. Uh, and now through this NATO 2030 document, you seek to justify the military purpose of this alliance by transforming it into a political instrument that can be uh, that can even override UN institution, uh, resolutions and national sovereignty. Uh, so at this point, he's talking about things, Mike, that you have recently covered, which is that NATO is uh, basically coordinating the countries with overlapping membership of it, such as G7, G20 and the various cyber security uh, organizations. Incidentally, the strategy that you uh, publicized in the previous segment has a role for my former colleagues at GCHQ as part of a new offensive uh, outfit called the National Cyber Force. I, I shudder to think, but I think that means some of the people who joined with me uh, have now been drafted into something called a force that they would never have had easy on their consciences about in the past. That's the procedure that the French generals here are warning about is that NATO is basically tugging strings so that uh, countries that are dependent on the American security blanket will say in other forums, let's agree to attribute blame to Russia unilaterally on the say-so of the Americans and the Brits. Yeah, yeah. he went on to say this defies even, defies even elementary logic, which dictates that the mission should justify the tool and not vice versa. Uh, he quotes the Romans and he says, uh, so no, Mr. Secretary General, we must stop this mad train before it's too late. France could never go along with this adventure of accepting American tutelage of Europe without betraying General de Gaulle's principles. Now, of course, France had a two decade uh, voluntary uh, unilateral suspension from participating actively in NATO exercises, which I think Brian witnessed the end of and may wish to comment on. And I know that the Royal Navy had its own views on that, as, as did the Army and the Royal Air Force. But um, to be fair to the Gaullist thinkers of the time, uh, let's let's forgive them for saying that this is all uh, les Américains that they're arguing against. They're really talking about the military industrial complex, as warned about by many people in the United States itself down to this day. Uh, and they're saying that this blob has become not the means, but the end. And the, the point of quoting there the Roman proverb, pedant arma togai, let soldiery yield to statesmanship, is that if you've got the means to resolve conflicts before uh, or instead of having a war, uh, then do that, rather than saying we have a massive mallet, let us go and use it to, to bash our enemies. Um, so uh, South, the, the Chinese have, have commented on this, or at least they've covered it? Yes, because just at the time this has come out, you might think, well, the slow coaches took nine months to comment on this NATO 2030 strategy. Well, it's very current because what has Mr. Stoltenberg, the addressee uh, in question, or the Secretary General of NATO said, uh, he was uh, addressing the European Parliament's Security and Defence Committee uh, just the other day uh, and uh, told the committee that if you're worried about China and you want to stop them bullying countries all over the world, then you, you must have more NATO and a politically united NATO. Uh, you know, shall we say a supranational tending NATO? And uh, indeed, the, 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 uh, the, the, I think the, the, the resolution of the letter says absolutely clearly, we can't go along with this. France may be in for another one of these suspensions from NATO uh, voluntarily. Uh, well, uh, sorry, did you want to comment just before we... Uh, no, keep going. I've, I've got a general comment on this. Uh, OK. Uh, well, look, going back to October, November time, uh, Mike Pompeo, who was then Secretary of State under Trump, uh, was had this to say, the US welcomes the EU's guidelines for third state participation in permanent structured cooperation projects, uh, opening the door to US participation uh, in EU defense initiatives will strengthen 
uh, NATO-EU cooperation as well, and more importantly, interoperability. And uh, well, we were asking at the time, or suggesting at the time, that this was in fact uh, you know, a, a US deep state policy to get involved in, in European Defence Union. Uh, and uh, so this would probably uh, move past the, uh, the new presidency. Uh, so he said at the time, we look forward to completing an administrative arrangement with the European Defence Agency to ensure broad US participation inside of PESCO. Well, in fact, uh, that has happened. Uh, and uh, in March uh, the 2nd, or at the beginning of the month, the Pentagon, the, the, the headline of Defence News was Pentagon pushes to partake in EU military mobility planning. So this is uh, one of the PESCO, uh, one of the, PES, the, the aspects of PESCO is in military mobility. Uh, and the US under Biden have now formally uh, requested to join. Um, so uh, we can say almost uh, that we are at this point. Uh, because, uh, well, they are, the, the EU, sorry, in the last couple of days have uh, responded very, very positively to this. Um, and they have, uh, they are going to have a formal vote. I believe this comes to the European Council on the uh, 6th of May, I think it is. Um, and it's very likely that uh, the US will be invited to join. But not alone, uh, because Canada and Norway, Alex, are also getting involved. Um, so I don't know how this is. This It's very interesting to see how this is all developing because NATO is obviously reorienting itself towards uh, uh, the South China Sea with, with NATO 2030. Um, clearly, uh, EU defence structures are intended to fill a bit of the gap there. Yes, and of course, the, the French would have their view of the perfidious Anglo-Americans, but if we accept, or well, we, we began this news with your end game regarding COVID, let's accept the end game analysis by these French retired generals. What they're effectively saying, and your last segment filled in some of that, is that membership is fundamentally irrelevant, whether you're a formal member of, of NATO or not, or even what role you play in it. Canada and Norway certainly, of course, are both in NATO, but they're not in some of the other multilateral uh, bodies uh, of the Euro-Atlantic uh, structures. The point is that what the French would recall, call the Americans and what you and I would call the military industrial complex has decided that it will need the bulk of continental Europe's manpower in particular. Perhaps the, that's the reason for the conscription of girls in many of these countries the last few years, at least on paper. We'll need that for the standoff against China. And the obstacle in the way is that there isn't enough animus to, uh, to withstand Russia as they would put it. And if only we, uh, we could have our spine stiffened uh, with sticks and carrots, then we can withstand Russia until the real end game they have in mind, which is sending, uh, you know, uh, 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 several hundred million men possibly against the several hundred million men they can marshal. It sounds like a doomsday scenario, but that's the level of planning that I think that is being hinted at here. Yeah. Well, just a final comment. I, I wanted to say to people, and of course, all of this, um, policy and politics going on under the smokescreen of COVID. So while the average member of, of UK society is preoccupied with, can they get out of their house? These policies are carrying on with absolutely no debate within Westminster whatsoever. So once again, I say, get on the backs of your MPs, start challenging them about what's happening here and asking why they are not engaging in any form of opposition to what's happening here, or at least debate in it. Okay, let's come back to the UK then. And uh, as we mentioned on Monday's programme, the Police Crime Sentencing Courts Bill was having a vote, uh, and that vote took place. Uh, to 358 MPs voted for it, 
263 MPs voted against it. Uh, it, it. That's for its second reading in the House of Commons. It will now go to the House of Lords and then the committee stage. Let's just remind ourselves briefly what this is about. First of all, it's about strength. Well, it's about many, many things, but it includes strengthening police powers to tackle uh, non-violent protests. Uh, it includes strengthening police powers to tackle unauthorised encampments. And uh, as much of the content of this with respect to, to protest and encampments has come from uh, policy presented by the NPCC in this document, National Police Chiefs Council Protest Operational Advice Document, version one. Um, the, what I think was particularly uh, insidious about this, Alex, is the fact that uh, protest would be uh, heavily shut down by the police if corporations are in any way uh, put out by the protest. And so that, for example, would mean that uh, should there be a second round of an attempt to get fracking into the country, it would become very, very difficult to run an effective campaign against that. It's the civil lawization or Napoleonization of uh, English law in, in, uh, in a sentence, really, because it's already the case that uh, corporations in civil law countries can claim personhood and can claim that they've been libeled or had their feelings hurt or their, uh, their profits infringed. That is the general, that's the uh, way in which this, this law, law is going. And like a lot of the legislation uh, being drafted in Holyrood, this Westminster legislation is just woefully slack in its language. Where have the parliamentary clerks gone? The idea of impacting on somebody, so such, such unquantifiable terms creeping into our law. Is it that uh, the parliamentary clerks have gone to sleep? Uh, well, uh, I, sorry. Well, they've uh, been displaced, Alex. This is the key thing. We've no longer got a um, civil service fit for purpose because it's been politicised. And of course, it's been riddled with the Trojan horses to get this sort of policy through, of which the lead one was the pernicious political charity Common Purpose. That was the job to get in and start breaking apart, particularly the public sector, the civil service, so that these policies could be drifted in. Uh, but I think, I mean, the use of this kind of uh, language, which is undefinable or at least vague, uh, leaves us as, as individuals open to treatment by the police because effectively the police themselves don't have a proper definition for it they can basically make the, the law up as they go along and perhaps that's that, the, that, idea, the, Mike, the, the idea sure. absolutely and that that video that we saw earlier sums that up but alex uh, let's just quickly end on this from police scotland the um, visit of the Queen Elizabeth um, aircraft carrier, of course, was quite a big show uh, in Scotland this week, particularly because Nicola Sturgeon refused uh, rather pointedly to acknowledge the presence of this British warship in British waters. Um, and so as Police, Police Scotland um, advised the public that for the duration that HMS Queen Elizabeth is visiting Glenmallon, no aircraft are allowed to fly within three nautical miles of the ship and below 6,000 feet within the three nautical mile radius, which prompted one lady, uh, Kerry Newton to ask why is the Queen visiting anywhere during the pandemic? Can I visit Aberdeen or Cheltenham? Uh, this got a follow-up from the UK Defence Journal uh, which asked are you a 65,000 tonne Royal Navy aircraft carrier? The lady has since deleted the tweet and has started maundering on about how cruel people are so it seems that she's got some uh, uh, opinions in response to her tweet. Mm. Uh, can I say the good news in that exchange was, of course, that the restricted area was defined in nautical miles, not kilometres, and it was 6,000 feet, not metres. So there's some hope there somewhere. 
Uh, and Alex, uh, you wanted to mention this. Yes, uh, breaking news in our and finally segment. Uh, news reporters around the world are dismayed as the new COVID variant has been identified in Wales. Uh, you just you just wanted to get the opportunity to say that, didn't you? Very it good. would be quite wonderful if something like that happened, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, OK. Uh, We've shown this before, but I thought we should show it again because it applies all the time. Stay alert. The media is the virus. Keep a safe distance from the BBC, Sky, Channel 4, ITV, and particularly The Guardian, which is uh, still begging for money as usual. Uh, I we, think we're there. Yes, we'll be back in 10 minutes for some extra if you're on the UK column stream. Indeed, and thank you to everybody who is watching and watching, listening, supporting us, uh, people who've uh, taken on um, membership subscriptions. Thank you for doing that. And a big thank you to our overseas audience, which we know is growing. We know you're there, so thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.